1: Hello, everybody. So glad that you're joining us today. This is Sally Ganga from Bright Horizons College Coach, um, and we are doing the Getting In podcast. I'm really excited about this show today because my old boss, Ted O'Neill, from the University of Chicago, is going to be on for our second and third segments. He'll be giving us a nice retrospective of his career and the kinds of changes that he's seen um, during that career, which started in 1980. Um, but first, we're going to hit the really practical side of things. Um, my colleague, Lori Peltier, is here, and um, she is going to be talking about understanding education tax breaks. So, um, so Lori, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, Sally. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> All right. So I have heard that you might be able to get a tax break while you're paying for college. Uh, is that true?
2: Yes, you heard correctly. You may be able to, but you have to qualify. As with many uh, tax breaks, you have to meet certain qualifications. There are two tax credits that people can take while they're paying for college, and then one tax deduction that you might get when you're paying back your educational loans. But in order to qualify for any of them, you have to have income below a certain level. You have to have paid the right kind of expenses, and you have to have had the right kind of enrollment for the student. And these tax breaks that we're talking about are on your federal income tax forms. There are a few states that have some tax breaks um, for education. So check with your state when you're filing your state taxes as well. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. So that all sounds pretty complicated, <laughs> kind of keeping track of what you qualify for and what you don't. Um, what is maybe the most common tax break and you know what might you need to qualify?
2: So the most common and the most generous tax break is called the American Opportunities Tax Credit or abbreviated the AOC. If you're married filing jointly and have adjusted gross income below 180,000, or if you're filing single and have income below 90,000, and you paid tuition and fees for a dependent on your tax return, you might qualify. Many people I speak to either earn too much money to qualify for the tax credit, or they might be in a divorced family situation where one parent is claiming the student but the other parent is paying for their tuitions. Uh, so when you're filing your taxes online, if you're doing it yourself, you'll look for questions about, did you pay tuition last year? Do you ha- are your dependents enrolled in college? So it will prompt you to answer the questions to get the credit. And if, of course, if you have an accountant helping you with your taxes, you would want to provide them with information about the expenses you paid for, for college.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Are there certain documents that you would need to submit to prove that you paid tuition?
2: Uh, Yes. The document you would get is called the 1098T. Uh, The 1098T comes from the college and it documents how much the student paid in tuition and fees in the previous tax year. So if you had a student enrolled in in the fall of 2021, check with their college to see when the 1098T is going to be released, whether it's going to be mailed to the student or whether you can download it from the college website. But it would give you all the information you needed about the student's enrollment status, whether they were full or part-time, whether they were an undergraduate or a graduate level student, and it would uh, then be able to be shown to the accountant to say, see, I qualify for the tax credit.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And so I think there are some tax breaks that are more generous than others. So how much are we talking for this <laughs> this last one?
2: Right. So the, the AOC is pretty generous. It's $2,500 in a credit. So that means it reduces your tax liability by $2,500 or can increase your refund by 2500 um, if you've paid up to four thousand dollars in tuition and fees so it's a percentage of what you've paid so depending on how much you've paid will depend on the credit but but 2500 for each child that you're paying tuition and fees for can really be helpful The other tax credit that's out there that you might hear about is called the LLC or Lifetime Learning Credit, and that Mm -hmm. one is a maximum of $2,000. So most people try to get the AOC first, and if they don't qualify for that, then they try to get the LLC instead.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And how about educational loans? I, I hear there's a tax deduction on those as well.
2: Right, and it's just on the interest that you've paid on your educational loans, and it is only for families who earn a certain level of income. So the income cutoffs for the student loan tax deduction is a little less than the AOC. So your income, if married filing jointly, is 170 thousand or less. Or if you're a single uh, filing single, it's 85 thousand or less. Uh, and the maximum interest you can deduct is 2,500 dollars per year. Your payments towards your principal on your loan don't count. It's just your interest payments. So again, um, the student um, will be notified by their loan servicer of how much they paid in their uh, interest on their loans in the previous year, and that's how they will get the credit.
1: Okay. And can the parent take the student loan interest deduction?
2: They can if they are the borrower on the loan. So if the parent borrowed or co-signed with the student then uh, and paid, you know, made payments towards interest, then they could take the credit if they fall under those income restrictions. Um, But if it's a federal direct student loan that the student borrowed, the parent can't take the credit for that loan uh, because that one is in the student's name and responsible, you know, the responsibility of the student.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Any last minute advice for people who think they might qualify?
2: Um, this gets a little tricky, but just something to be aware of is that if you're paying for your tuition and fees with a 529 plan, as many families have saved in 529 plans, which is a, a investment that gives you some tax breaks as well, and you qualify for the American Opportunities or the Lifetime Learning Credit, you have to manage your withdrawals from the 529 plan because the government doesn't allow you to double dip to pay your tuition and fees with the 529 plan and get a tax credit on those same tuition and fees expenses. So check with your tax preparer and see if you qualify for any of these credits and then try to pay some of your tuition and fees out of pocket or with a loan so that you can take the credit and not pay it 100% with your 529 Mm -hmm. plan.
3: Okay.
2: But in general,
1: I'm guessing you'd still recommend 529 plans for people. This is not a reason not to say.
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're going to have enough expenses, you yeah. <laughs> know, and most people don't have enough in their 529 plan, so it's not a, an issue. But um, I do meet families who, you know, they have the money and they want to use it 100% their freshman year. You might be better off not draining your 529 your freshman year, paying some out of pocket so that you can take that tax credit because it is pretty generous.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Great. Lori, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. All right. So we uh, will be returning in just a few minutes, and um, I'll be talking with Ted O'Neill about his career in college admissions.
0: When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back. And I'm so pleased to see to say that I'm here with Ted O'Neill, the former Dean of Admission at the University of Chicago. Was that your title? Did you have? Am I getting it right? Was there anything? Any other title? I know Emeritus Professor probably is in there. So yeah, uh,
4: no, that's uh, grand enough. Okay. Uh, there has been, among other things, I've seen in my time in admissions, has been an inflation in titles. But
1: uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Only being
4: Exactly. Exactly. I was was also a lecturer in humanities.
1: That's right. You were a lecturer. Actually, I'm just going to say now that used to drive me nuts because it was in the spring and I needed to talk to you and you were in there with your students.
3: That's (laughs) right. That's true. So I would Um, lurk
1: outside your door and drive you nuts. (laughs) (laughs) So so just so everybody knows, um, Ted started. Well, Ted, why don't you go ahead and actually introduce kind of give us an overview of your career, and then we'll start going into things in more detail.
4: Okay. Um, I started, um, actually, I was an academic advisor in the Dean of Students Office at the University of Chicago while I was working on my PhD there in English. And um, I did some work for the admissions office. I interviewed students. I read some applications. So I had a taste of what admissions was. Um, But my first admissions job was my first real job in the world. I um, I was the uh, associate director of admissions at the Seminar College of the New School in New York City, which was, as has been my history, a kind of slightly different kind of college. Mm-hmm. Um, very small, um, all seminar, uh, no departments. We just all taught the thing we most wanted to teach. And um, the students were usually younger they usually came to us after 10th or 11th grade hmm. so it was a, a and it was a you know it was a very serious operation I mean it's um it was part of a much larger operation which was an adult college but we had younger students and we operated in New York City and Greenwich Village and they the students lived on their own at the age of 16 or so mm-hmm. and um and uh, that was my start in both teaching and in college admissions.
1: And this was 1980. So this was also a different era in New York, I think, too. It wasn't, although I guess New York is having struggles again, but it, I, uh, I think it was a little rougher around the edges back then. It was rougher
4: around the edges and it was a little rougher in the village. And our one dorm was on Union Square, which is a wonderful place, but at that time was could have been seen as a drug market, among other things. So, you know, our students were young and mature. They Mm -hmm. they grew up fast. They learned how to live a city life. And they were young intellectuals. I mean, they wouldn't have come had it not been for the fact that they were very interested in their liberal arts studies and in in ideas. So you know a very interesting setting for me to begin. Not so unlike University of Chicago in some ways, where I'd spent a lot of time working on my degrees. Um, the Dean was a Chicago graduate, about eight members of the faculty were Chicago graduates. So, you know, there were some similarities and some significant differences,
3: mm-hmm. but that was
4: my, that was my start. And, um,
1: and then what I drew st- you, I'm sorry, what drew you back to Chicago?
4: Well, another, you know, and a chance to come back and a job offer, uh, a a job at a, significantly larger and more in some ways uh impressive place um so I came back as an associate director of admissions after two years in New York and uh, joined some old friends and um joined the a, a university I was very fond of and very much respected
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean honestly I, I like your our career in some ways is somewhat similar because I went to and uh, worked at Reed College, which is a, kind of similar to the new school, very intellectual, very kind of self-selective, I think in the way the new school is, definitely not as no. well known as Chicago, although Steve job's dropping out of there and then his biography <laughs> seems to have helped the profile. So, um, but that was something that I like, I, I think I was kind of maybe similar to you too in that when I applied to Chicago, it was the only school I was applying to. I was happy where I was, but I thought, here's an opportunity to work at a place that I I've kind of thought of as like the mecca of intellectualism, you know, and that and I, I uh, so I was really glad to go there and kind of experience that on sort of a an institution that's really known at a global level. Never have I regretted that I attended Reed or started my career there. But being exposed to an institution like Chicago was pretty special. And I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts about that.
4: Well, I think it is special in the ways you mentioned. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about the people I like most at admissions is that they they follow their, really their educational interests, not just a bigger job and, mm-hmm. or more money. The money's never very big anyway, but, you know, <laughs> more money. Um, so, you know, uh, the fact that you wound up, went from Reed uh, to Chicago with a stop in between, I know. Um, That I went to uh, back to Chicago, but was at the new school where we were really start starting something different and starting something interesting. Um, And um, then my subsequent jobs, which were minor and short lived. But after 20 years at Chicago, working for a while for St. John's and Albuquerque and then um, doing some work really as a consultant for Deep Springs College in California and then working at uh, Bard College Berlin, um, all places that I found different and interesting. All the struggle in admissions terms,
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, even Chicago in those days, which is now uh, doing splendidly and getting many more applications than they need. But in in those days, um, you know, not so not so popular,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: respected for all the reasons you mentioned, but that respect frequently scared people off um mm-hmm. thought of as very difficult, very eggheady, not much fun
3: mm-hmm. um
4: cold, which it is today and yes. <laughs> um so uh I mean I was I guess in some ways I was lucky in my career, but in some ways I did what you did. I followed my interests and I respected every place I went, even mm-hmm. though the admissions task wasn't necessarily easy. it's mm-hmm. not like going to a place with it automatically kind of has a big applicant pool and people clamoring to get in Mm -hmm. not true in any of those cases Mm -hmm. Um, and i respected the places more for that to tell you the truth Mm -hmm. we had to work a little bit harder and could try to do things somewhat differently and uh, could admit students who weren't absolutely perfect by the numbers but who were very interesting people and interesting thinkers so you know that affords you a little bit of freedom uh, working in admissions, a freedom that I think um, we we'll, we can talk about this more later, but freedom that a lot of people don't have anymore.
3: Mm-hmm. They are really
4: mm-hmm. forced to seek perfection, so-called perfection in the students they're admitting, which uh, I think is a lot less interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. A lot less interesting. I also think that because of it, high school students are a lot less able you know, who are sort of want a school like University of Chicago, they feel like they're not able to just explore interests in the way that I think was more possible back in the day, where you could just explore your interests, be an intellectual and still be competitive for these schools. Now, on the other hand, the upside is that there are still all these wonderful colleges out there and you've just named multiple of them. So, yeah. Yeah,
4: it's true. I mean, if I were that kind of kid, I'm not sure I was when I was 17. I I wish I had been, but, you know, if I had been that thoughtful, idea-seeking, adventurous kid, um, I, um, and I knew what I know now, and I don't know really enough uh, about the range of possibilities, but, you know, right now, and I, if I were to be the kind of student who is a pretty good student, but not a straight A student, and not someone with tremendously high SAT scores, if that matters anymore. You know, I I, I still would know that there are places like Bard College of Berlin that mm-hmm. does amazingly wonderful things in the liberal arts, um, where entry isn't quite so forbidding.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: You have to be a certain kind of student, but you don't have to be the perfect student. And I think that's liberating for schools and for colleges, certainly for admissions people.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: I feel like it is harder to make the case also now to parents about schools like that. Like that's something that, you know, was already a little bit of a challenge with Reed when I was there, but sort of, I feel like much less so, at least I mean, maybe it's just my change in focus, because at this point, I'm advising parents and high school students, and I'm always advocating for small liberal arts colleges. I'm always trying to throw in women's colleges. I'm always trying to discuss, you know, like places like Bard, if it's the right student, et cetera. And often the student will be all in, you know, their eyes will just get so big when I talk about like a place like Bard, where you can combine biology and film and, you know, whatever. Um, Uh, But the parents are like, my kid's going to be unemployed, (laughs) you know? And I think that that's where some of that pressure is coming from. Would you say so? Oh, I think so. And
4: I don't, when we talk about changes over time that I've been doing admissions, now, in effect, 40 years, um, I think parents have changed. And I'm not sure why they've changed. Because, you know, America's been in pretty good shape. You know, people don't. People aren't out of work. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, go, if you go to a Bard and major in film and biology, it doesn't mean you're cast adrift in the economic world. Mm-hmm. People get jobs. Um, people do very well. Um, so the panic that parents feel that students have to do certain things or they will never have a job seems to be entirely mistaken. If you look at the economics of uh, America and the time we're talking about, Um, but they've gotten panicky. They really Mm -hmm. think they've persuaded themselves, even the ones who had liberal arts educations and loved them. Mm -hmm. They seem to think that times are so changed that if you don't major in business or economics or engineering, you're you're simply going to be lost for life. Mm -hmm. Not true, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I know of course I know Chicago best, but we had no business majors. We had no engineering majors. We just did the liberal arts, we had did a common core liberal arts. And um, everyone eventually got jobs.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Not always the first month, but people do very do very well. you know mm-hmm. they um, they're smart thinking people, they're ambitious, they know how to work hard and um, they're rewarded for that. So mm-hmm. parents should calm down
3: mm-hmm.
4: but they're not calm mm-hmm. they' they're not calm in terms of what their kids will study and they're not calm in terms of trusting colleges to do their job without needing the biggest name or the most prestige or having the highest rankings which of course is another thing that's changed and that we can talk about mm-hmm. the existence of rankings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah parents are um it's very funny uh, you work with them and i i worked not with them they were, and i just
1: want to interject quickly that you are a parent and you had yeah. two kids right who probably didn't major in anything very practical although i might be wrong <laughs> no, they, well
4: english you know yeah <laughs> um, so many uh, admissions people were english majors yeah my daughter did english and my son did um, international relations and uh and um, I didn't need to push them in any direction. They just followed their inclinations. I knew it would work out for them. And it did. The world has treated them very well.
3: Mm-hmm. And
4: um, I, I never really worried about that. Um, but I know, I know parents do. And I know that's one of the things, especially you have to encounter mm-hmm. face-to-face all the time. I didn't have to encounter it face-to-face. I, parents were always very polite. You know, when they were talking to the yes. universities, even if they thought what I was talking about was crazy. Um but no, and 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 students have changed. It's not just the parents. I mean, they're they do seem to be more practical in their orientation. They do seem to want to do the thing that might get them ahead in the world, um, not what did we care about when I was applying to college in the '60s? You know, we cared about changing the world. You know, and not so much getting ahead in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so students have changed to some degree, probably not as much as the parents, but the parents have taken on this sense of responsibility for their kids' success in the world, and it affects the way they think about college. Mm-hmm.
3: It's too bad. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's an interesting notion, what you've said, that they've taken on the responsibility. So I always thought that maybe the root of this was financial because higher education is so much more expensive. And I, I'm i sure that's playing part of the role. But I think part of the other the other piece of it is parents feeling that sense of responsibility mm-hmm. that I don't think my parents felt that same level of responsibility. You know, they wanted to launch me off. They were willing to pay for college. But then it was kind of up to me to get it done. Yeah you know
4: well notoriously so i mean you say it see it more closely than i do i mean i read about it i know parents are involved or too involved and um and that's and that's that's a change too i mean when you talk about the 40-year stretch um it's remarkable that (laughs) in my short lifetime uh so many things have changed in so many ways Mm
3: -hmm. and i
4: think parental behavior at least at least amongst the middle class of america has um, i think truly changed
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i actually i think you're right it's pretty interesting i don't speak as a parent but from working with lots and lots of parents and in my case i started working at admissions uh in uh 92 so Mm -hmm. yeah um let's talk a little bit. You mentioned U.S. News and World Report. And as you said, I think that that is responsible for a lot of the changes in admissions. So can we maybe pivot to that? I think it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on it.
4: Yeah, I'd be happy to um, talk about it. I mean, what I'm what I will say has been said by many, many people before. I mean, it's so obviously a blight on um college admissions and the way we think about colleges that everyone uh kind of condemns it but everyone pays attention to their rankings you know i mean uh, i haven't seen them in many years but you know you have to confess to kind of guilt of saying well i don't know small liberal arts colleges in the south let's see what us news and world report says and <laughs> you know you do get a certain amount of information there, but, uh, but it's a judgment and the judgments are very bad or Mm. Mm -hmm. ill-founded. And uh, of course, anyone who works in admissions uh, or works with students who are thinking about college knows that these rankings take on much too much weight. They Mm -hmm. relieve people from doing a lot of thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. You want students to be thinking beings you don't want them to look at what a magazine says is good um and in fact the magazine doesn't even really say this is better than that they just say this is college is richer this Mm -hmm. college is um and more prestigious more popular um those are all things that aren't really measured of measures of quality
3: Mm -hmm.
4: and you'd think students would know that and you'd certainly think parents with their experience in life should know that but they don't seem to they actually Mm -hmm. think this is a an honest or a best approximation of judgments about quality Mm -hmm. um drives you crazy um and i mean that's one way to look at it the other way to look at it is from a practitioner's point of view and if you're a, a dean of admissions your job explicitly or not is to do better in the rankings
3: Mm -hmm.
4: and and you know not educate students better not do a better job of teaching people but becoming more popular
3: Mm -hmm. becoming
4: um and becoming more selective Mm
3: -hmm. hence Mm
4: -hmm. part of the desire not all of all of the desires can be, be attributed to this but part of the desire to get more and more applications. So you can turn down more and more people Mm -hmm. so you can appear more and more exclusive. And, um, that tells that pays in the, the rankings. And of course it's, it leads to bad behavior. Mm -hmm. It leads admissions people to do things they, they really shouldn't be doing.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. There've been cases of inflated, um, SAT or ACT averages, Mm -hmm. um, But more, I I do think that's fairly rare, at least I really hope it is. Um, But what's actually quite common these days is how much colleges really pay attention to yield, because isn't that a measure on U.S. News and World Report? I know it was a big thing for a while. And so for our Mm. listeners, yield is basically of the number of students who you admit, what percentage of them actually come Um, that at least used to play a role in U.S. News and World Report ranking. It has nothing to do with quality. Um, But as a result, I've seen certain schools, like I had a student who was, you know, a school was a safety for her basically by the numbers. She was well above these schools' averages. And by the way, a great kid. I mean, even if her numbers had been lower I'm very fond of this young woman. She's incredibly impressive and thoughtful. And they deferred her. And I'm 100% positive it was for yield reasons. And she thought, did I mess something up on my application? And I had to reassure her, no, you really didn't. This is just a school making a decision based on yield.
4: Well, it's um, one of the things, and one of the things we should talk about is the way computerization has change things, because we're talking about a period when computers essentially didn't exist, at least as personal computers on people's desks, um, uh, to a time when computers are driving a lot of what we do. Um, But knowing things about students, which one would think is an absolutely good thing, can be very dangerous. You can ill use the knowledge you have. So you can, for example, now, unheard of when I started doing admissions work, you can really know a lot about students and their preferences.
3: Mm-hmm. You,
4: like an advertising company, like a marketing firm, um, marketing firms actually playing a pretty large role in this, um, you can tell who might come and who might not come. Not who's a better student, not who's a better fit, not who... Deserves it in whatever way we mean Mm deserves. But we can tell if uh, that very good candidate is less likely to come. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: Well, they're so good, they'll be admitted by so-and-so. Therefore, we won't admit them. That Mm -hmm. constitutes lying to students because what we say is not we're going to admit people who we think are going to come we say we're going to admit the students who are best suited to us or most talented or most meritorious. And it's, it's frequently just a lie. Mm -hmm. So put Mm -hmm. them on the wait list and see if they'll hang around. And if they hang around, it's more likely that they'll accept our offer and then we'll look better. We'll have a better yield. Mm -hmm. Um, What any of this has to do with real education is, um, it's very distant from educational concerns it's all marketing concerns it's mm-hmm. all public relations concerns so admissions people have really become not just marketers which in effect we always were because we're trying to put the best face on things and persuade people to apply and come but we're a public relations people mm-hmm. we want to make our place seem popular so that we seem better so that more applications applicants flow in so our alums are happier and contribute more money and um and and everyone falls for it college presidents who mm-hmm. you think would know better fall for it college faculties who are so smart
3: mm-hmm. fall
4: for it everybody wants um the ranking everybody wants more applicants everyone one wants a higher yield rate and so little of it has to do with what you're there for, which mm-hmm. is to educate students. Um, it's, yeah. So, yeah, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say I mean, one of the things I like to point out to people too is everybody deserves a top notch education. I mean, it, you shouldn't have, have to have been perfect in high school to have access right. to really, really like interesting educational opportunities, you know? And I, I think that that again, like that's one of the things, like when I was at Chicago, we were still able to take some risks, you know, sort of less and less. But I remember taking a student who had just written the most brilliant essay and he wasn't perfect, but he was sort of like amazingly thoughtful. And you went for it. Like I brought, I think I brought, I hand delivered his file to you and you read it. You were like, this kid is something special. And we were still able to do things like that. Yeah.
4: Yeah. We, we could do it. We Mm -hmm. could do it because we weren't, I mean, Chicago now admits, I mean, it's ludicrous, and I, I pay no attention to this except everyone blares it out so publicly. I think Chicago probably admits like 5 or 6% of the people who apply.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: If you're admitting 5 or 6% of the people who apply and your eye is on how much they can pay and other kinds of contributions they can make, um, you just can't take chances. There's just no room for chances. Mm-hmm. you want the sat averages at least i'm speaking like an old timer now maybe sat's don't matter much anymore but you want your sat averages to be higher than everybody else's and completely meaningless when it comes to who's suited to a liberal arts classroom you know sat scores in my experience and i was teaching for 25 years while i was doing this admissions work didn't matter well, other things matter that mm-hmm. kid who essay you brought me that matter that's what we do if you can write like that then you're most of the way there if you get a 780 on your math score it doesn't even mean you're a good mathematician Mm -hmm. it just means you've been trained to take the test pretty well you have a certain facility it doesn't it's not meaningless but you it doesn't mean you're a thoughtful mathematician or ever will be Mm um so, yeah, being able to take chances is, is and, and as you know, there are plenty of places that still need to take chances. So, you know, it's if we speak about this as if everything hinges on whether you get in to the Chicago's or the Ivy Leagues of the world, you, you're missing so many possible mm-hmm. opportunities because there are tremendous colleges that are languishing because they can't get enough applications. Mm-hmm. What happened? They used to be held in high regard, but now they're held in lower regard because they aren't as popular as these other places. Um, so as students, I think in, they shouldn't despair. They they should celebrate the fact that there are real options out there of very fine places. But, mm-hmm. but we're kind of losing... Um, that sense of excitement about finding the right place and finding Mm -hmm. the place that does such a good job because they care so much about their students or do something so different or have a curriculum that is not just like everybody else's. Um, So this is not all bad news, but I think it's frequently seen as all bad
3: news. Mm -hmm.
4: So hard to get in. Therefore I have to apply to more places Mm -hmm. The more places they apply to the happier colleges are because their numbers go up numbers of applicants go up, but everything is more confused. Mm -hmm. No one knows what will happen. How can you predict so you have to apply to what did people, you know, people used to apply to four or five places. And now they apply sometimes to 20 places, as you know,
1: or 30 even. I mean, I don't let my students do that. But yeah, yeah yeah and
4: and, you know so that means everything's confusing nobody knows what's going to happen you can't predict anything the only people who can predict things reasonably well are the people who have all the information meaning the college admissions offices that have everything in their computers they Mm -hmm. can judge did you visit did you look at how long did you look at our website you know they have some knowledge of people the way people may behave Mm -hmm. but uh, students can't predict Mm -hmm. therefore they have to do things that are kind of foolish apply Mm -hmm. to 30 schools ridiculous
3: right
1: yeah and yeah and I mean I I think as you said things get confusing and so I do have sympathy for the students I mean I want them to be more thoughtful about this but at the same time you know they're dealing with the pressures from their peers they're hearing I mean I remember when I was in college I was taking a bus and this guy started talking to me and when I told him I was a history major He was like, well, what are you going to do with that? And I'm like, Mr. On the Bus, who I'm just being polite to, is going to judge my major. (laughs) Like, I was like, you know, I really think everything's going to be fine. Thank you very much, you know, and it was, you know, it has been very much so. So, um, yeah, like, I feel like it would be great to be encouraging. And I do think the right way to be encouraging is by talking about these other schools out there that are really wonderful, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, the
4: wonders of education are frequently the things—the last things we talk about. I mean, can I imagine how great it would be to be a 18-year-old and go to St. John's and Albuquerque in, Albuquer- in uh, Santa Fe or mm-hmm. Annapolis and read those great books with kids who really care, with mm-hmm. teachers who are masters of of not just talking about things but listening. Mm-hmm. Amazing, amazing opportunity, thrilling. Mm-hmm. But we don't talk. I mean, we're seen as like the man on the bus saw you as a history major. They they see that kind of talk as naive talk. You know, what's it about all about? Where's it gonna go? What's it gonna happen? Um I think we've I think we as educators have backed away from the uh the excitement of, and of course my own interests are that in liberal arts education. So I think of course, liberal arts education is the absolute way to go for everyone, which I actually kind of believe, but you know, I'm no reason why a mechanical engineer can't be as excited about the prospect of doing that in a place that, um, that does it well, where Mm -hmm. the fellow students who are as involved as you are and where the teachers are great. but, you know, the liberal arts, to me, seems to me such a basis for prospectively happy life. Mm-hmm.
3: That's what
4: it's all about. You know, how do I live a life? That's that's what the education's about. So if you have the opportunity to do that when you're 18 and know that when you're 22, you're going to have to somehow figure out what comes next. And something always comes next. You'll be trained somewhere you'll go to law school, you'll do something, they know something happens that suits you to to the American economy as it exists. Um, There's just such a, it's such a treasure when you're young to be able to have that kind of education. Mm
3: -hmm. But we don't
4: talk about that. I mean, I think we're embarrassed to talk about that or we think it doesn't work.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: You know, if you... Gee, when you were at Chicago, I think we were engaging marketers, basically people who are going to, you know, get our material out fast. That was mm-hmm. our main interest. But they all also had ideas about how you do these things. And their ideas were always, don't tell them too much. If you tell them too much, you give them things that they might not like, might turn them off. Don't tell them anything right off the bat wait until later. Um, what kind of educational message is that, that you don't want to reveal yourself because it might turn people off? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, so, I remember, oh, go
4: ahead. No, no, go ahead.
1: Well, I remember talking to Michael Banking, who was the vice president when I was there. and um, And he said that his goal was just to get the word out, because most at University of Chicago, before he got there, a lot of students were coming from the same schools. And so the way he looked at it was, let's just get the word out to more people. Right. <laughs> so we're not trying to artificially raise applications, but let's make sure people who haven't heard yeah. of Chicago who are the right fit. And I thought, well, that's a lovely way to expand the pool. That's the right way yeah. to do it. You know, not yeah. just trying to get every like, but educate people along the way about what kind of institution it is. Yeah.
4: And, and we have the tools to do it because with the advent of personal computers and the Internet, um, you had cheaper and easier ways to get your message out. If you were willing to give a message, at least get your name out, depends on how much you're willing to say. Um, yeah, we lived in an age when you, we could actually convey information much more efficiently and students had better opportunities to um to know about colleges, whether they took advantage of it or not, you know, it's kind of up to them because mm-hmm. it was all out there. I mean, so many, it's, it's such a better scene in so many ways uh, because people feel they can apply widely, not meaning applying to 30 schools, but meaning, hey, I can apply to a school in Portland, Oregon, even though it's a really far away. Mm-hmm. And even though it's expensive because I know there's something like financial aid that works pretty well. Um, and I don't have to apply to s- schools based on sect or race or gender. I can apply anywhere.
3: Mm-hmm. And
4: almost all places have at least a semblance of financial aid that can support me if I need it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's That makes for a much better world. It, of course, it also makes for lots and lots more applications which causes mm-hmm. some problem as we've already talked about and then of course when you add to that the artificially boosted number of applications mm-hmm. then you start to get in the trouble but you no know, it, it's a better world in that students have more choices more information mm-hmm. can go more widely and, you know so to balance the bad there's that good and that good is very good
3: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. I mean, I, you know, some schools don't give grade eight packages, but lots of schools do that students aren't aware of. I mean, and uh, so I'm I'm constantly trying to encourage students, try it, apply, see what yeah. happens. If they doesn't, if it's does the money doesn't work out, you don't have to go. But if you don't apply, you're not going to know. And I do think that is a good reason, you know, to apply to a few more schools. Like don't yeah. trophy hunt, don't try and you know, but but it is fair to apply to a few more schools to make sure that you have that aid package that is affordable. You yeah, know? I know
4: that's I know that's true. Yeah. You never you you actually you never know. Um, but I would say in general, financial aid is probably more available than people know.
1: Yes. I think in general a lot of
4: people simply won't apply because they think they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. And um, being able to afford it is something you'll never know until you see a financial aid package.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah
4: um, And of course, as schools are competing, they frequently they either make better or fairer packages or they throw merit money into the mix, which mm-hmm. is a problem in some ways, but it also benefits some students.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Something you'll never know about until you actually apply. Um,
1: and that's a change as well, Ted, isn't it? I mean, merit aid really started to take off. I didn't even, I'm not sure I even knew about scholarships. (laughs) Like, I mean, I just knew about financial aid when I went to college and then when I worked at Reed and then I started hearing, it feels like more and more schools are offering it.
4: Yeah. I think that's probably true. It's funny because to many people in America and probably to everyone at a certain stage, scholarship meant oh you win a scholarship because you're really really smart or and um, people are going to give you money because of your talents and of course we lived through an era where basically the money was dispensed based on your need mm-hmm. and then of course places started to compete with money um, and um, there was always some defensive Ex- explanation i mean at chicago we had merit scholarships way back and um you know uh, the basic reason was well we're, we're as good as these other guys but we can't attract the students because they don't want to come as badly as they want to go to the other place therefore we're going to give the monies to persuade them to come okay mm-hmm. very se- selfish reason
3: mm-hmm. it was
4: very limited and it didn't um, mean it was impossible for us to meet the full need of all our needy students so Mm -hmm. I think I think it was relatively benign
1: yeah it 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 got to the
4: yeah it got to the point where colleges realized that they would um, use money and they could hire people who could tell them exactly how much money it would take to attract students they could do an analysis of every family and what they wanted from a college and what their financial situation was. And they could say, this is how much it'll take to get them to our college.
3: Mm-hmm. So
4: the idea that you're meeting need disappears and the, even financial aid, not just merit money, but merit money is so mixed in when you start to do things like that, that, um, uh, you use the financial aid package as an inducement mm-hmm. not as a rescue um and that that started to happen in a lot of small colleges again their reasons were we're getting killed out here people don't want to go to small colleges as much as they used to we have to compete with the big state schools that are cheaper we have to compete with the more prestigious guys who have more money and more and more um uh, better rankings um so we'll we'll start to give people money as if under the table Mm
3: -hmm. pretending
4: that it's meeting need but really giving money in advance of need because Mm -hmm. we want to enroll these kids and the whole system really teetered you know um so 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 merit money has now become so mixed in uh that nobody quite knows what need-based financial aid is and Mm. of course a lot of that merit money had to come out of the need-based pool
1: do you think that that's still the case though even at the wealthiest schools i mean i know that's the case at schools that are less wealthy yeah but my sense has been that places like the ivies and and even chicago has merit, but my sense is they're still meeting full need yeah which i think is because because they're well off
4: colleges can be very rich you know i Mm -hmm. mean we We can talk about how poor we are, but we actually can be very rich. I mean, the endowments are big and nobody knows really what endowments mean and what they're for. Um, You know,
1: I heard someone describe Harvard as a hedge fund with a little education uh, side. side
4: It's like a a bank. I mean, they don't they don't need that money. They won't ever need all that money, but they always want more and they'll always get more because people want to please them and want to be associated with them. Okay, mm-hmm. that they're an odd case. The other odd case yes. is Bard College, where the president says, "No, we're not a bank. We want to use our money. Let's use it all. Let's do. Let's educate people in prisons. Let's have colleges in Tajikistan. Let's uh, let's uh, be sure that our students are uh, supported in the way they need to be, and uh, and forget about forget the business about saving lots of money for mm-hmm. some." future what disaster why do it you're educating now make use of the money Mm
3: -hmm. and i think
4: and as a consequence a place like bard can do some very exciting things that no one else thinks they can do they Mm -hmm. either don't have the ideas one problem or they feel they can't spend the money Mm -hmm. too bad Mm -hmm. spend it all (laughs) <laughs> do do good things
1: <laughs> yeah i mean bard's prison program is amazing and That's i keep amazing. hearing about it yeah their and,
4: international programs and their high school programs right i mean they have high schools in you know like the poorest neighborhoods in what six or seven seven or eight american cities and they educate kids and give them associates degrees at the end of their four years of high school Mm -hmm. Um, because they do such a good job with them and they hire a certain kind of faculty, they do amazing things. And it's cost a heck of a lot of money.
3: Mm -hmm. You know, you
4: can't save it all for some time later Mm
3: -hmm. if you're
4: going to do those kind of expensive and uh, imaginative things. And uh, not many colleges have that, um, that spirit. Mm
1: -hmm. No, not many at all. But there are other colleges, as you said, trying to do something really different. I mean, Deep Springs is another yeah. example of a school that, why don't you describe what it is? Because I think most people haven't heard of it.
4: Well, it's, it's funny. There was a segment on uh, 60 Minutes recently about it. It was very informative and good. I mean, it's an odd, I mean, it's an odd place uh, and it's very small. And in terms of American education, it's such a drop in the bucket. It almost doesn't matter, except it's a good example. Mm -hmm. It's a place that was um, funded, I think, 1917 by a very rich man who wanted a college where the students would actually work on a ranch while they were studying, and they were to be trained in mostly liberal arts, but also in leadership. The, the, The idea was that they would be leaders in American society one way or another, and many have become politicians. and. Um, and it was all male for a long time because those were the terms of the original will, but that will has been been broken so that now it's men and women in equal numbers, living out in a desert valley, working every day to make the place run, cooking the food, cleaning the place, working on the ranch, um, taking, the, taking the cows up in the mountains, And doing serious, serious intellectual work. Now, it's.
1: Ted, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt because we're almost done. We only have one minute left. So I have to kind of close it out. But thank you so much for being on the show. And hopefully people have heard this and kind of understood how broad the opportunities really are here in this country even now. Yeah. yeah,
4: good. Well, you do good work, Sally. I mean, that's your job. <laughs> okay,
1: <laughs> so. doing my best. All right, thanks everyone. And um, yeah, we'll be back next week.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.